Please pray with me. God, you have spoken to us through your Son by his presence, his words, his love and compassion, his dying and his rising. Let your written word now be spoken and heard by each of us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. Humble us to accept your truth that we may all learn and bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. For our final sermon in the Gospel of Matthew series that we've been doing this August, we are listening in on a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. We are still in Caesarea Philippi, that pagan outpost in which Jesus had taken all of his disciples. It was a pagan outpost that was far from home, far from everything that they knew in the way of way things are supposed to be in terms of religion and rulers and home life, and he's taken them there purposely because he's upsetting their equilibrium, and it's there that finally they're getting the message. So when he asked Peter, or he asked all of them, who do you say that I am? Peter was the one that confessed, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that's the turning point in Matthew's gospel, and it's marked very specifically for the rest of the book, but also by a phrase that you will now hear, from that time on indicating that everything Jesus says and does in the remainder of Matthew's gospel will now prepare the disciples for his fateful walk to the cross and then beyond. So listen, listen for God's word as Jesus and Peter continue to have their conversation. Listen for God's word as I read from Matthew chapter 16. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block for me, for you are setting your mind on divine not on divine things, but you're stuck on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone wants to become my follower, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and for those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay everyone for what has been done. Here ends our reading. Yes, I slipped in one more line. History is filled with stories of failure and people who have a lack of faith as well as we are replete with examples of lives that experienced more pain because of their fear of failure and their fear of faith. So fear can be toxic in either way. Sometimes you just need to go big or go home. So here's a true story for you. Many of you know that ministry is my second career. By the time I'd reached the University of Chicago's Divinity School, I had resigned from a position managing a consulting practice but to pay the bills, I'd accepted a part-time job as a director of marketing, but it wasn't full part-time after I found out. It was really needing full-time attention. 
and my mom had just been diagnosed with breast cancer for the second time. On the first day of class, I parked at the garage at the north end of campus, and I began to walk south towards Swift Hall. It was a late September day, maybe even early October, because classes start late. I didn't see the color of the leaves. I couldn't see that day the chrysanthemums or the goofy posters around campus for the undergraduates. I was just too scared to see anything. What if ministry isn't for me? There are far more qualified ministers than there are viable positions. And I knew that my former colleagues and clients might accept me back if I returned, but not without wondering if I were truly committed to the profession and their needs. And in my new job, employees and coworkers had far greater expectations of what I could do regardless of the number of contract hours I would be there. And plus, I didn't want to be in a firm that had such blatant racism. And then I wondered about my mom. I was really scared. Just as I approached Regenstein Library, scrawled on the sidewalk in chalk for plain for me to see, cast your anxiety on God because God cares for you. That's from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Peter speaking to me. I had to smile. Along with all the posters and signs, who would have imagined that a secular university and one that oftentimes feels hostile towards faith, who would have thought that I would read this right next to the library? I took a breath and I walked on, but I fell back into questioning, could I honestly do this? What would people think? And I was spinning in such a circle of my own doubts at the time that by the time I passed under the gates made famous by the movie When Harry Met Sally, I didn't see the gates, I didn't see anything except right there on the sidewalk, written again in front of me. Cast all your anxiety on God. God cares for you. Although it had been maybe a hundred yards since I'd last read it, I had already forgotten it. So I continued on through the quad, and I actually this time noticed other students that were sitting next to a fountain. They were the smart students, the young students, the students that were far more capable than I in writing papers and arguing ethereal concepts, and students that would pick up the Hebrew and Greek with just a glance at vocabulary and not the stack of flashcards that I was carrying. I'd wondered, should I, or could I, in middle age, pass these ancient language exams for ordination? So that's where my mind was. I'm approaching Swift Hall, and one more time, I see the same scripture passage on the ground. I've said it to you twice. Do you remember what it is? Cast all your anxiety on God. God cares for you. It took three times for me to honestly embrace Peter's message to me. I'd been so caught up in the story of what others thought of what I needed to be or what I thought I needed to be for success, I was unable to receive the consistent truth lying absolutely at my feet. Peter was practically shouting at me, don't be afraid. Just turn to God. So you heard in my story, my fear of the unknown was high. Who do I trust? And my fear of failure was almost as crippling. What must I do? And now as I look back on it, I'll candidly admit, I was so afraid of not being able to manage everything that I actually did a really lousy job of everything that I did at that time. My fear of failure did more to foreclose on the future than actually failing might have been at the time. 
Now, in our reading last week, Peter was asked, who do you say that I am? And he shared his glimpse of Jesus' divinity by answering, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And today's reading continued that conversation but marked the turning point from that time on. Throughout the remainder of Matthew's gospel, Jesus' sole focus will be to teach the disciples of what it means to be the son of a living God. He would suffer. He would be handed over to death, and in three days he would be raised. This was the first time Jesus predicted his death and promised resurrection, and he would repeat it three more times, almost word for word in Matthew's gospel. But this first time, Peter failed to understand. In his mind, a Messiah is to overturn all of what's wrong with the world, just like Jesus had been doing, but then take his place as the ruler of this world. Jesus had lifted up the oppressed and the outcast, and he should wreak destruction on those who had been oppressing them. The Messiah was to upend the wealth distribution and bring prosperity for everybody. And Peter's rebuke proved that he was still trusting in the world's ideas of success with winners and losers competing in a zero-sum game. In Peter's estimation, Jesus was walking into complete failure regardless of what and on the third day be raised would ever mean. They both knew the ruling forces would not tolerate Jesus' continued disruption Inevitably, Jesus' death would be the most expeditious way for the ruling elite to silence him, and it wouldn't be a death in the dark of night given his growing popularity. He would need to endure a physically as well as emotionally torturous death staged to destroy the dreams of all of his followers. The man whom Jesus had called a rock, this Peter, just breaths ago, he is now calling a stumbling block. For Peter couldn't see salvation was part of that plan. And although Peter was the lone voice recorded at the time, even by the end of Matthew's gospel, some of the disciples who had heard all four predictions had stood at the foot of the cross and were watching Jesus ascend. Matthew's gospel tells us they still doubted. Jesus's way of the cross defies human logic. Like Peter, what we most often want is more of what the world already offers security or wealth or status or popularity. But from that time on, Jesus embodied the truth that our lives are far more precious than simple daily comfort. He came as the Son of God to free us from all of our notions that limit us. And Peter's first step towards this freedom meant that he needed to realize his ideas obstructed Jesus. Peter had to give up his notions of success and failure before he could be free. And since Peter didn't understand what Jesus as the Messiah meant, he was just told to get behind and follow. In other words, zip it and listen to what's going on. Before the cross was something for us to believe in, it symbolized condemnation and fear. No one would willingly walk towards an agonizing and disgraceful death like that. But our Messiah had entered into many aspects, in fact, all aspects of a messy human life. He was born in an animal's barn to an Udwed mother. As an infant, he escaped Herod's sword by becoming a refugee. Jesus labored with his hands and lived as an itinerant preacher with almost nothing on his back. Everything about Jesus' existence revealed God fully invests bringing holiness 
to our mundane life. And it was by embracing human suffering and death that our Messiah would redeem this life of ours. The cross of Jesus is where God is joined to the fullest experience of loss, suffering an unjust and cruel death. And it's out of love for our lives that God does this. God is always present, not causing chaos, but entering into it, not sending calamity, but always suffering through it, not standing over us, but holding tightly onto us and promising to never let us go. Wherever there is human tragedy or pain, the incarnate and crucified God is always there with us. Before the cross was something to believe in, it was the event that taught the disciples and teaches us what it means to profess Jesus as Savior. Now, no one gets this right the first time, or even the second time, and we always continue to struggle between seeking what the world offers in security or trusting in the cross, just like Peter. How can you live now, and how do you inherit eternal life? Even though we are taught serving and following Jesus is the way, we have such a hard time grasping the cross and receiving its grace. But Jesus' cross does change everything. This summer, we have enjoyed what lovely weather, and it almost seems to contradict the tragedies and the violence that's permeated August. I think back on all the prayers that we've written, what we've had to pray for is astounding. Charlottesville seemed to erupt out of the blue. North Korea continues to hiss, and neo-Nazis creep out of dark holes every time we turn around. Any one of these events could be enough for us to want to shut them down and lash out at those causing disruption, rather than face the problems that fostered such threats. <coughs> and then we experienced Hurricane Harvey, which could prompt some to just some to just want to hunker down and be thankful that the storm passed them. Now, some could stay out of the fray by offering platitudes of, oh, it was God's will, or God does not give us more that we can handle, or God helps those who help themselves. I think I've beat that enough this summer. Those are Christian lies that we have been talking about over the last few weeks. To hide behind these lies implies that one holds on to notions of success and failure in the human realm. But clutching these platitudes so tightly keeps one's hands closed around a very small ideal of humanity and a very small idea of God. And it also keeps one's hands closed to being fully alive or ever receiving the gift of grace. The cross that will save us is the cross that involves us. And we have seen this in action throughout August. Ordinary people who mustered the courage to live in ways counter to the world by speaking out against injustice, by giving generously, and by risking their own lives to honor the life of another person. I'll admit, as I planned this sermon in early August, I had in mind the story of two swimmers who were caught in a riptide off the coast of Panama City. One swimmer after another after another went out into the rip current with an attempt to save them, only compounding the problem by being caught in it as well. So complete strangers joined hands on the beach, attracting more and more people until enough were joined together to reach and save the swimmers. 
Now, the human response to Hurricane Harvey has read that script and magnified it beyond imagination. The storm that dumped an epic volume of water on the Gulf Coast also transformed an army of people into heroes who will forever never be known by name and perhaps never thanked beyond a thank you for what was such a selfless gift by so many. What happened in Hurricane Harvey defies human logic in a world of winners and losers, but it confirms a willingness of humans to give for a greater good that gives us all life. So what about those of us who didn't join the Cajun or the Texan Navy, doesn't have a pleasure boat and a pickup truck? Or what do we do after we've wept our tears and given generously to rebuild? How do we continue to experience what it's like to have faith in the cross? We can give someone else another chance instead of writing them off. We can forgive someone who has wronged us rather than seek retribution. You see, with Jesus, we get do-overs after our failures, and we can offer the same to another person. We can offer our future to God by seeking joy and service rather than an acquisition. We can speak against racism and sexism and all of those other isms that demean another person rather than sit in comfortable silence. For some, these things might feel like little deaths, giving what we've earned or risking what we've created but we give them up for the cross of God who will raise us to new life. In the words of Franciscan Father Richard Rohr, who I know many of you read, I quote, Following Jesus is not a salvation scheme or a means of creating some ideal social order as much as it is a vocation to share the fate of God for the life of the world and to love the world that God loves, which we can never do all by ourselves. Now that might be too much of a stretch for us to remember after we leave these doors, but perhaps you'll remember what Peter said to me and what he has said to you this day. Cast all your anxiety on God because God cares for you. Please pray with me now in a moment of silence. Dear God, we bring you our everything. We bring you our fears, our failures, we bring you our very lives, and we ask that the cross of Jesus transform us into living lives, humble and vulnerable to your will.